Hello, I'm Amber Athey, Washington editor of The Spectator, and I'm here to tell you about our fantastic new election offer. Go to spectator.us slash election offer and subscribe to get three months free access to The Spectator US website and our new app available on the Apple and Google Play stores. Make sure you're getting the very best coverage and commentary in the run-up to November 3rd. Find out more at spectator.us slash election offer. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more, more than once a week, because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. I'm joined today by Jeff Finn-Paul, who is Associate Professor in History at Leiden University. And we're going to be talking about his piece in this week's Spectator, which was called The Myth of the Stolen Country. Now, Jeff, in this, I think, extraordinary piece, you attack uh, the notion that has become prevalent or almost sort of ubiquitous in the English-speaking world, that the New World, the Americas, were stolen, and that is sort of the, the founding of, of America and Canada based on a, an act of monumental genocide uh, and cruelty, and it's sort of the original sin of democracy almost. <laughs> sure, yeah. I'd just like to ask first, I mean, could you tell me about wh- why you came to this conclusion, what motivated you to write the piece? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, some of the immediate uh, triggers, I suppose you could say, for me uh, was was learning about this app that had been distributed widely amongst uh, American college students that I mentioned at the beginning of the piece. Also, you know, learning about this uh, statement of guilt every morning said in Canada. Yes. So I realized that these things have moved out of the academy now and they've really moved into the culture at large. Tell, tell us a little in, bit about that app. I mean, for people who haven't read the piece, it, it's quite a shocking introduction. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, so apparently now uh, American college students are being greeted on their campuses uh, and told to download this app, which they input their home address and it tells them from which Native American tribe their home has been stolen. It is quite shocking that and and strangely cruel, I think, <laughs> on people. I suppose, arguably. I mean, it, it's just that, you know, we've been seeing this kind of idea foment in the academy for 20 or 30 years, but I think some of us are realizing that it's now gotten out into the culture at large, maybe via social media, and it's starting to cause real damage. So we have to move away from this one-sided interpretation of things. Let's deal with the sort of the meat of the, the piece first. Why wasn't the land stolen? What, how can you argue against the idea? Yeah. Well, I mean, you'll notice I, I put a bunch of... I'm an economic historian uh, as one of the hats that I wear, and so I put a bunch of structural issues in there, and then I also do a little bit of personal anecdotal stuff. Mm. So for me, the structural issues are maybe the most important. I mean, people don't realize, for example, the simple fact that the New World population was going to have serious plagues ravage the whole uh, continent as soon as sustained contact with the Old World was initiated. So the idea that the Old World was somehow responsible for unleashing disease on the New World is just, you know, biologically untrue. It's, it's a fact that would have happened. Yes. 
And then there's other ideas such as uh, the old world population was much higher. So in the long run, the old world population probably would have flowed to the new world and overwhelmed it in some ways or at least created a hybrid culture. Yes. I mean, that's just what humanity does. Where, where there isn't population density and there's population growth, mankind will sort of fill the, fill the land. Yeah. Precisely. And, and you know, it's, it's really difficult writing about these things in general because, you know, you, you might excite the attention of really right-wing kind of nut jobs on, like on us, this yeah. issue. <laughs> and, 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 but really, this is all about a call for moderation in our interpretations, not going too far in any one direction. Yes. And that seems to be something that's happened is the balance has lost. And uh, as an academic yeah. yourself, what's happened there? I mean, is, you know, right-wingers, talk a lot about cultural Marxism. You mention it in the piece. Yeah. Is yeah. that accurate? Is, is it that cultural Marxism is taking over or has taken over a lot of American academia yeah. and, is, and is sort of brainwashing people to feel ashamed of the country they were born in? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I think that academics get a bit of a frisson. You know, they're living in their ivory tower. They want to say something radical. They don't just want to be center of the road. And so for, you know, maybe 80 or 100 years, the, the dominant paradigm in humanities departments was some kind of class struggle idea derived from Marx. Then in the 1980s, we see this turn towards identity. And I really do think that the idea of cultural Marxism is, is real. It's not just made up because the idea of constant struggle, of perpetual struggle, you know, it became kind of passe after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 to talk about this in economic terms. But suddenly you could take the same paradigm of struggle and look at it through the lens of race and identity. And it excited uh, humanities professors in the same way that Marxism had done previously. So I, I think it's really become dominant sort of for those reasons. Well, well you now hear a lot of talk about successor ideology, which is an interesting way of looking at this phenomenon, which is the, the, the kind of the academics and the people who, who buy into these ideas about um, the beginning of America believe that they are their time has come now and it's time for them to take over and get rid of the shameful past expunge it somehow yeah well i mean for me as an academic i think that of course european academics were were guilty of being too prideful too nationalistic too eurocentric for a long time and then we saw a reaction for maybe 40 or 50 years that said the opposite you know we we have we were too eurocentric it's time to to move against it yes and i i agree with that i don't think we should turn the tide back to you know the old eurocentrism but i think it's time for a synthesis of these two extreme views so i i think that these people have been fomenting this one-sided view for decades now and frankly a lot of us are getting tired of it in the academy but also with it doing real cultural damage it's time for some of us to speak out about a, uh, a synthesis, a new way forward that's not so, you know, uh, so focused on a single side. Well, Donald Trump is often accused of ugly nationalism and perhaps sometimes rightly. Yeah. But in a, his speech at Mount Rushmore recently, I think he sort of tried to address this, or certainly his speechwriters did yeah. quite intelligently, by doing a speech that was essentially a sort of what we should be proud about in American history. And this theme was echoed in his convention, his party convention, the sort of, yes, America has done things wrong, but essentially we're a great country and there's no shame 
in being proud of it. And I think it's quite an effective political argument because a lot of people feel that they're constantly being told that their country is terrible and dreadful and then they think about it rationally and they think actually no it can't really be that bad yeah well well that's the thing i mean of course there's plenty of things to be proud of with american with anglophone culture and and certainly there are things to be ashamed of and there's you know grievances that need to be wronged but I think since the pendulum has swung too far in one direction that, you know, statements even made by Trump, and this is a real minefield for me as an academic, yeah. uh, can, can move in the right direction. You know, I mean, they can say, we can't just tear down the Jefferson Memorial at a whim. We have to take uh, the good with the bad and be mature about it and talk about it in a scientific way instead of in a sort of mob, mob mentality. It does seem to stem from from self-hatred. And what's really disturbing about it, and you get at this in the piece, is that it it's sort of a, a hatred of democracy itself in a way. Yeah, and, and that's where I think we're really moving on kind of globally dangerous ground. I think that critics within the United States don't realize how much of an international effect they have. Mm. They don't realize how the U.S. is looked up to internationally how it's really been the anchor or a major anchor of the idea of democracy in the globe ever since World War II, uh, if not earlier. And, and uh, you know, so to criticize American democracy so fundamentally, to cause it to be so seen as so illegitimate, it really emboldens autocracy around the world. I mean, I think that autocrats are just rooting for this movement to do as much damage as possible. Yes. Well, some people say they're, they're actually even funding it in subtle ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, who knows? I mean, I'm not, I'm not one for conspiracy theories, but if I was uh, in a position to fund that sort of thing, why wouldn't you really? Yes. And um, the stolen land myth connects to another sort of myth that's being created, and that's the 1619 Project, um, yeah. which is uh, sort of tries to begin with this premise that America is so all about slavery and that the only thing, yeah. the only origin of America is is slavery. Yeah, yeah, and that's difficult for me because I've studied global slavery a lot and I've looked at how so many different cultures around the globe have had slaveries of different kinds. Mm. And I, I think we're getting at a fundamental problem here, which is these cultural Marxists, if we want to call them that, really want to view the entire history of the world through the lens of slavery or race right now. Yeah. And to me, it's the same way that academics used to do about class struggle, you know, especially humanities uh, people. So the, the obvious conclusion is that you cannot view the history of the world as, a, as something driven by a single cause. As soon as you only look at one cause or one motor of change, to the exclusion of all others, well, obviously that's going to be a caricature of what's actually happened. Isn't it interesting that it, class struggle has sort of been ditched from the equation because a lot of the people who sort of push these ideas are effectively, you know, the upper class, the higher classes. And is there an element to which their class guilt um, motivates them to have this very angry view of history? Yeah, yeah. I, I really wonder if people even think in terms of class anymore at all. I mean, I mean, f for me, when I think about, you know, solving our problems in the present, I still think along the same lines that maybe even a Bernie Sanders would do that we have to solve our economics problems first, 
uh, and that the you know race and identity issues can be mitigated a lot more easily if we solve those problems first. As to class guilt, especially in the United States, I think that most Americans think of themselves as being middle class. Almost almost 90% of them think that way. And so I really don't know how that would fit in, actually. Well, I always found it quite odd that Bernie Sanders was attacked for being a misogynist and uh yeah. and so his campaign was sexist and stuff and it was sort of a very odd yeah. identity politics way of trying to cripple him well this is really where i started to split from the left i mean i i was a, a good leftist academic like like most for a long time and then when i saw that the hillary crowd went very much for identity and the sanders crowd was left with you know the the class or the working class issue but then they were being viciously attacked for not say, wanting to pay slave reparations right away. Uh, that, to me, just meant that kind of infighting was really absurd and that it was kind of dooming them to failure, which, in fact, it did, I think. And lastly, Jeff, do you think there's... You know, obviously, you've written this piece. There does seem to be some academic uh, rebellion, and perhaps that's the really edgy thing to be now, is 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 to rebel against this stuff, and you can get your frisson from yeah. that. <laughs> but I think, I mean, do you think there's a, a, a significant resistance to this? Or do you think the resistance to it has a chance of winning? Yeah, well, at, at present, I think we're still seeing the effects of this kind of American... It, the, the epicenter of this was in the United States, of course. And now we're starting to see it bleed onto European campuses, such as my own. I think I think we're in for several years of things getting worse from my perspective before it might get better. So I think if there is a resistance movement, it's very much nascent. I feel at this point like, uh, yeah, maybe I am on the cutting edge of it, but it could just be a, a movement that never gets started. We might all be stifled, uh, or there might be so much damage done before we get a chance to organize ourselves that who knows what will really be left. Have you had any uh, threats of cancellation or, or negative pushback yeah. from your piece so far? Yeah, well, so far, I've really just received a lot of uh, support from grateful people saying, we've really been too afraid to say this. We're glad that you said it in an articulate way. So mostly it's been support. I mean, I'm sure that the, the pushback will come, but it might take a week or two to galvanize. So maybe talk to me in a week or two and we'll see how it goes. Okay, we will. <laughs> we'll come back to you, Jeff. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks again for that excellent piece. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. 